the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to another installment of The Dan Proft Show. Follow us at danproftshow.com, on Twitter, at danproftshow, and at danproft. And uh, his book, Clinton Cash, was a centerpiece of the 2016 presidential election. His uh, subsequent book, Secret Empires, continued on this theme of addressing politicians, political families, both sides of the aisle, that leverage their political office for personal enrichment. Some would argue unjust enrichment. And uh, he's done it again. His book that is out now that frames the 2020 election and many of the participants, including the current Democrat Socialist Party frontrunner, are profiled in Peter Schweitzer's new book, Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite, the top of the hypocritical food chain, if you will. Bernie Sanders, not a poor man. You know, out of the commune, Bernie and Jane are. And I think we should start there with Peter Schweitzer. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, great. Thanks for having me. So recently, the last uh, couple of tax years, uh, Bernie and Jane have had a combined income north of a million bucks, mostly from um, book royalties and book sales and, and of course, his uh, generous Senate salary that we all pay. But one of the things that you point out, they do this little game that other politicians do, too. Uh, you know, you get an advance, but they also use Senate campaign funds or presidential campaign campaign funds to buy thousands of copies of the book, you know, to distribute at events and so on and so forth. So it's a, a quote unquote legitimate campaign expense, but it also goes to his bottom line to increase the royalties he gets from the publisher. So it's a nice little twofer that uh, Bernie and Jane do there to uh, augment their income uh, at present. Yeah, no, I mean, look, it's it's uh, U.S. senators are allowed to take book advances. Uh, they do it, but nobody has been more prolific in writing books than Bernie Sanders. Uh, in fact, he has uh, written far more books than he's actually passed successful legislation during his career, and that's fine. But the problem is, as you point out, that he's taken more than half a million dollars of campaign funds to buy copies of his own books, uh, which he distributes. That certainly helps his advances and helps you know, his arrangement with his publisher. So that's kind of the first layer of the Bernie Sanders income stream. The other one is media buying, which is one of the sort of dark art of Washington, D.C. You know, if you were running for the Senate and you said, hey, I want you to do my media buying, spend a million dollars on TV ads, the industry standard would be that that a million dollars would show up in the Federal Election Commission filings that you spent a million dollars. But I would be entitled as the media buyer to a 15 percent commission or one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's kind of standard. Well, what's interesting about Bernie Sanders is very early on, he realized this. So he put his wife in charge of media buying, right. even though, of course, she had no experience doing media buying. So they've made hundreds of thousands of dollars by doing media buys. And the thing about this, I know something about this, too, um, working on a lot of campaigns and being a general consultant. 
um, you know, if you have seven figure ad budgets like Bernie Sanders does, then you're negotiating down that placement fee for your media buyer. It is not 15 percent. It's more like two or three percent if you're doing it right. And it's and it's tiered based on, you know, different levels of spend. You know, when he's just writing uh, or the campaign is just writing a 15 percent kicker to her to technically do the media placement, then he's vastly overpaying with respect to the market rate for that service. By tracing the money, we know that she and her children actually set up an LLC in the early 2000s that was registered at their home. Uh, And we know by doing some uh, forensic work that they were the media buying entity. And we know that based on roughly a million dollars of media buys that we were able to calculate that she took in about $150,000. Yeah, there you go. Um, The big mystery, and we do not know where this money went, um, so I'm not saying that we know that it ended up with the Sanders in any way. But the big mystery is the 2016 presidential campaign. What we know is that he spent $83 million on media buys. And those media buys were all done through a company called Old Town Media that had no website, that really had no other clients, that was registered to a residential cul-de-sac in suburban Virginia. So, you know, we are talking there about, you know, huge numbers in terms of uh, media buying. We know that that entity was controlled by two of Jane Sanders's friends. When Jane Sanders was asked about this by a reporter in Vermont, she simply hung up the phone and didn't answer the question. So we don't know where that money ended up. But but to me, this is one of the things that we really need to clear up in Washington in general, but also I think with the Sanders, is this whole issue of media buying, because literally it does not show up on any FEC filings. You don't know who gets those media buys, and it could be a family friend or it could be anybody. Um, And I think we need to have transparency there. Let's rewind all the way back, because what you're talking about in real time has been sort of the story of the Sanders rise in Vermont politics and national politics. His first job, like in life, being the mayor of Burlington, uh, one of his first hires, Jane Sanders. So it's been this use of government to bring people on the payroll and that carried forward with Burlington College and everything else. But just talk about sort of Bernie's patronage model of building his political career. Yeah, I mean, Bernie's very interesting because he really was elected mayor of Burlington, Vermont at the age of 39. Uh, Prior to that, he really didn't hold a regular job. And there's lots of stories in the book about how his utilities would be shut off. So he would run an extension cord from his apartment to the suite lady downstairs and he'd plug into her power outlets. I mean, he did not consistently maintain a job. When he ran for the Senate in the 1970s on the third party ticket, he collected unemployment insurance at the same time that he was a candidate. So once he becomes mayor, I mean, this was a big deal for Bernie at age 39. And one of the first things he did was hire his then girlfriend, later wife, Jane, and put her on the city payroll. Now, In Burlington, the Democrat City Council erupted and said, wait a minute, you can't do that. There's no job listed here. You didn't allow anybody else to compete for that job. And Bernie just, you know, ignored them and said, this is the way that it's going to be. And that kind of began this pattern of, in that case, using taxpayer money, but using campaign money. He's put his children on various campaign payrolls. And when he created the Sanders Institute, his sort of nonprofit organization that morphed out of the 2016 campaign. Campaign. He put his son in charge um, and gave him the largest salary, which I think was $100,000 for sort of a part-time job. 
So it's been a persistent problem, and it's reflected in the fact that Bernie Sanders has a rather large stock portfolio. I mean, people are surprised by this, but he has millions invested in the stock market, and they're not invested in what you'd call socially responsible investment funds. I mean, these aren't solar companies or or organic beef, you know, ranches. Um, he's invested in big pharma and oil companies and all the things that he's regularly criticizing. It's this yawning gap between what he says and what he actually does. With respect to Biden, a lot of pub has been devoted to Hunter. But as you mentioned, this goes well beyond Hunter, the Biden five. And it's interesting because there's a pattern, the same pattern with Hunter. Joe Biden is the administration's point man for Ukraine. Hunter's in Ukraine. Joe Biden is the administration's point man for China. Hunter is uh, doing business with the Chinese communists. And with the other family members, Joe Biden is the point man for the administration in Central America. And the brothers are doing deals with Central and with with and in Central American countries. That's exactly right. And this is, I think, the key point. I mean, I think, look, everybody realizes who spends five or 10 minutes studying politics in America recognizes if your last name is Biden or your last name is Bush, you know, you're going to have certain advantages. That's just one of the things in life. The same thing happens in Hollywood. You know, if you're connected with a famous family, the problem in the Biden case is not just the fact that they got the deals, but the timing of these deals, because the timing of the deals corresponds almost precisely to Joe Biden being given sort of a central role in Obama administration policy. Um, You know, for example, Joe Biden becomes the sort of one of the key figures in Iraqi reconstruction, you know, where we're spending billions of dollars reconstructing Iraq. Well, in November of uh, 2010, a Biden family friend, uh, Kevin Justice, a guy from Delaware who's known him for a long time, comes to the White House, meets with Biden's people. We don't know what they discussed, but we do know that he had just started a new construction company called Hillstone International. Three weeks later, James Biden Joe Biden's brother becomes executive vice president of the of the new construction company. He has no background in construction or in large project management. Uh, and within six months, they land a $1.5 billion contract to build homes in Iraq, 100,000 homes in Iraq. So how does that happen for a new construction company with a senior executive that has no background in construction? I think it's pretty clear it happens because Joe Biden is one of the leading figures in a Iraqi reconstruction project. And, and ultimately, they that company had to back out of that deal, right? Right, exactly, because they did not have the capacity or the capability to do it. And I think that you know, government auditors looked at this and said, you don't have the ability to pull this off. They did get other projects with the State Department and elsewhere that were smaller. But um, you know, it speaks to the fact that that this insider game exists in Washington, and you know, sometimes people will say all of them do this, all of them don't do this. There are people on both sides of the aisle that do not do this. We're talking with best-selling author Peter Schweitzer about his new book, Profiles in Corruption. When we come back, I want to move from Bernie and Biden and fold in a couple other candidates, Warren and Booker, most notably. More with Peter Schweitzer when we return. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're 
We're back with Peter Schweitzer, author of Profiles in Corruption. All right, Peter, let's uh, move on to a couple of other progressive elite presidential candidates. You got uh, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren, Sherrod Brown, Amy Klobuchar, and Eric Garcetti, mayor of L.A. I want to talk to you about um, Elizabeth Warren because, of course, her campaign is uh, is ostensibly all about middle-income families and, uh, you know, and she does this Tom Joad routine where she grew up in the Dust Bowl, mom, pa, and that whole deal. <laughs> and, uh, and and really the campaign, as uh, Megan McArdle pointed out, um, uh, it seems more like it's about the sort of stylish problems of wealthy suburban women. And uh, talk about Elizabeth Warren, who happens to be a wealthy suburban woman. Yeah, a lot of people don't realize that Elizabeth Warren's uh, net worth is, you know, we only know in ranges because they don't have to disclose exact numbers, but her net worth is is around uh, $12 million. Um, and look, they pay you well on the Harvard faculty. They don't pay you that well. So the question becomes, where did her money come from? Um, and what's interesting about it is, is she actually played uh, uh, one of the, I would argue, dirtiest but most common games in Washington, D.C., uh, people don't realize in the mid-1990s, she's a Harvard uh, law professor. She gets hired by Congress uh, to help rewrite portions of U.S. bankruptcy laws. Um, and she talks about in legal affidavits uh, the fact that um, uh, her recommendations and her language was incorporated into the bankruptcy code. Uh, well, here's what's interesting. What does she do? She's still advising Congress after they've passed some laws. While she's advising Congress, she gets in contact with large corporations and says, these laws are going to be an issue for you, possibly. So why don't you hire me mm. to help navigate around the laws that I actually wrote? Um, and she gets hired by a whole host of companies that are facing class action lawsuits. Uh, Dow Chemical, for example, over the, the controversy over breast implants, um, Armstrong worldwide over asbestos. Uh, and they all pay her the equivalent in today's dollars of about about $1,000 an hour advising them how to minimize their liability and avoid uh, some of the payments that they might have to make uh, in these large class action torts. There's nothing illegal about this. Um, certainly corporations are entitled to representation, but this runs totally contrary to the narrative that she portrays, that she fights corporations, that she fights for the little guy. She says, I've always fought for the little guy. It's just not true. And she leveraged her uh, uh, government employment as a consultant uh, to cash in big time uh, with corporations. And we know she's made millions of dollars uh, in that consulting work she did for large corporations. That's sort of like a combo of insider trading and the old smash and grab. Uh, it's a nice little yes. uh, twofer that she's uh, utilized there. Uh, one more, but just because he's another uh, phony, you know, Cory Booker, who does his Jenny from the block routine. Uh, you know, I live in the hood in Newark and all this. Uh, what about uh, what about Cory Booker's largesse? Yeah, I mean, Cory Booker um, is uh, contrary to image that, you know, he's this fresh reform figure uh, in politics, um, just earnest and devoted. I mean, he is a classic Newark, New Jersey machine politician. And we go through in great detail all the aides and senior officials while he was mayor uh, that were political allies of his and friends uh, that ended up going for j going to jail. Um, you know, because they were uh, engaged in bribery or, or other forms of, of corruption. 
Uh, when he was elected mayor, one of the first things he did was hire uh, the son, the teenage son uh, of one of his top donors and supporters um, to handle IT and creating a new website for the city of Newark. And they paid this kid, uh, you know, uh, more than a million dollars to do this, uh, which, of course, he totally screwed up and they had to hire someone else. And that's just kind of a small glimpse into how he ran the city of Newark. Once he became a U.S. senator, he sort of transplanted that machine in Washington, D.C. And the way we trace this, we talk about this in the book, is he has a couple of close aides that have been with him from the beginning. Uh, they're big fundraisers for him. They help run his campaigns. They're also registered lobbyists, which, you know, again, that's fine. I mean, lobbying is a, is a legal uh, activity. The problem is, is that you can chart and see the clients that his two close friends get based on his committee assignments. So, for example, when he first comes into the U.S. Senate, uh, he's not on the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, and his best friends have no foreign clients. When Cory Booker becomes a U.S. Senator member of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, they're s suddenly signing up uh, foreign clients galore. And there, there seems to be pretty clear evidence that he is doing the direct bidding um, of his friends who are these registered lobbyists who are also raising money for him. And it's the sort of typical machine game that you see in Washington, D.C. Uh, and again, runs totally contrary to the image that Cory Booker has of being this reform-minded guy who is just earnestly trying to make the right decision. Yeah, and it's just, and it's just the old game of uh, sort of one middle step of unjust enrichment rather than right to my pocket it's converting my position for campaign cash which then gets me reelected which then goes to my pocket exactly and and this is what i call offshoring corruption uh this is a really important point you're making here dan is is you know people need to recognize that it, you know in the eyes of the law and i'm not saying that we know legally that this meets the definition of bribery but you know it's not just bribery if you if you give a benefit to a politician if you give a benefit to a close friend or a family member uh in return for official favors in the eyes of the law that's the same thing um, but it's a lot harder to prove and it looks a whole lot better uh, if you're not receiving the direct benefits. So instead of giving somebody a shoebox full of cash, maybe you hire their kid or you hire their best friend who's a lobbyist. Um, this, the effect is the same. You're essentially you know, buying a favor from a political figure, um, but the political figure can say, well, look, I didn't get any money. I didn't benefit from it. Um, and it's, it's a very slippery thing to deal with. I don't know that you can pass laws to try to fix it, but what we do need to do is be mindful of it, and we need to expose it, and I think we need to call people out, whoever's doing it. And that's what Peter Schweitzer has done in his new book, Profiles in Corruption, Abuse of Power by America's Progressive Elite. Peter Schweitzer, president of the Government Accountability Institute, author of New York Times bestsellers, Clinton Cash, Secret Empires, and now this one, Profiles in Corruption. Peter, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. Just wanna say this is my way of taking
You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, as we uh, wait with bated breath for tomorrow night's Bloomberg appearance on a debate stage, 2007 Bloomberg performance has inspired me to advocate that he exit the debate stage tomorrow night in Nevada the same way. I'll tell you where I'm going. What stage presence? First, Iowa, then New Hampshire. Maybe I can get the whole country to behave. No. Yeah, and then little Mike Bloomberg is whisked away on the wire. Yeah, that was uh, Mike Bloomberg in the role of uh, well, Caesar Mike plays Mary Poppins, a stage performance. I, uh, I like it on two fronts. Uh, of course, 2007, so 13 years ago, the foreshadowing of uh, Caesar Mike running for president. Not a surprise there. But uh, also the uh, getting America to behave. Because isn't, isn't that really... What this uh, little Lord Fauntleroy Paul from New York City demands, it's remarkable some of the comments that are coming out as people pour through the Bloomberg utterances over the last 15 years as he has been a prominent political figure. And each day we get uh, new offerings from Bloomberg that uh, are sure to offend new elements of the identitarian party. So, for example, we get more from Bloomberg on young black and Latino men. This is after his uh, stop and frisk bite from the Aspen Institute conference uh, five years ago, where he talked about uh, having cops throw young black men up against the wall, see if they have guns. Of course, he's apologized for that. Here's more musings from Mike. This cohort of black and Latino males age, let's say, 16 to 25, that don't have jobs, don't have any prospects, don't know how to find jobs, don't know uh, that they, what their skill sets are, don't know how to behave in the workplace where but they let, have to work let collaboratively. Me if I, let me don't know how to behave in the workplace. The thing is, if you put it in context, I, I want to be fair because there's no need to overstate the case. He's talking about uh, young black and Latino men who are not enrolled in good schools, maybe don't even, for a long time in New York City, didn't, in many neighborhoods, didn't even have access to good schools, didn't even have an opportunity to earn a quality education, discriminated against by their household income and their address. And you give Bloomberg modest credit for pushing to expand charter schools in New York City. So there were more options. It was a slightly more competitive environment than when he arrived. Okay, so that's fair. And uh, suggesting that, uh, you know, they're uh, engaged in unproductive behavior disproportionately, not exclusively, of course, but disproportionately. So there needs to be something done about that. But it's the way he chooses to talk about people that's instructive, not, you know, parsing through the substance of what he's getting at. And, you know, to some, to some extent, uh, Trump suffers from this as well. So I'm not suggesting Bloomberg is the, uh, the only one who has a rather stern bedside manner. But the way he talks about uh, groups of people who are not in his uh, socioeconomic circle, socioeconomic cultural circle, is just so dismissive. It's the, similar to the clip we played yesterday, uh, him talking about farmers, those who used to work in, in factories where the machines were run with a brawn rather than digitization. 
you know, the manual lathe as opposed to the digital lathe in today's manufacturing environment. And it's uh, not that uh, things haven't changed. It's just that he doesn't appreciate that things have changed and people have changed in the farming business, in the manufacturing business. And oh, by the way, a generation ago when you were working with your brawn and your sort of uh, understanding of the lay of the land, farmer's intuition, if you will, experience. Now you're now you have uh, farming families incorporating that technology and getting on just fine. So it's not a gray matter issue categorically the way that Bloomberg spoke about it at this conference at where else? Oxford. It's that dismissive attitude about other people's lives. He, he, he is the perfect representative of something I say about the left all the time. They're just very cavalier about the lives of other people. They do not see other human beings who, again, who are not part of their strata, who can't get into this room at Oxford, as Bloomberg uh, said, and uh, we played that clip last week. They're they're, uh, liabilities to be managed, not assets to be developed. That is a big philosophical divide when you look at another human being. Is that uh, a liability I have to manage to stay out of my way so I'm not put upon? Or is this, the, the person I'm looking at, this is a, somebody who is an asset because every human being is an asset and has talents that we should try to create an environment that provides the full blossoming of their talents and their contributions, both, both for their own right and benefit as well as for larger societal good. Bloomberg just doesn't come across as the assets guy, does he? We'll pick up uh, more with uh, Bloomy, and we'll have that right after this. Maybe I can get the whole country to behave. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prop Show. We're talking about the Bloomberg candidacy as he uh, prepares on Wednesday night to make his uh, first appearance on a debate stage with the uh, other socialists. I'll tell you what, perhaps his uh, most offensive utterance as it pertains to his competitors and the Democrat Socialist Party primary electorate is this one from his uh, unauthorized collection of unauthorized sayings. This is this uh, gift from employees back uh, some three decades ago that resurfaced uh, Sunday Washington Post story mentioned it last night's show. Forget the misogynistic comments. Forget the comments that uh, seem dismissive of people of uh, a particular age cohort or racial cohort on capitalism. I believe in the capitalist system and free enterprise. Oh, my gosh. Wow. I believe in capitalism and free enterprise. Michael Bloomberg. Uh, there better be a full retreat from that statement if he wants to be that party's nominee. huh? Yeah. And uh, maybe these statements he offered to uh, a group of Jewish voters he was speaking with his view on uh, end of life care. It is not the most empathetic view you're ever going to hear. I'll tell you that. And what things they can fix right away. And if you're bleeding, they'll stop the bleeding. If you need an x-ray, you're going to have to wait. That's just all of these costs keep going up. Nobody wants to pay any more money. And at the rate we're going, health care is going to bankrupt us. So not only do we have a problem, it's going to bankrupt us. And we've got to sit here and say which things we're going to do and which things we're not. Nobody wants to do that. You know, you show up with prostate cancer. 
and you're 95 years old, you should say, go and enjoy, have a nice day, live a long life. It's no cure, and you can't do anything. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Society's not willing to do that yet. So we're going to bankrupt us, and we're not looking at... Mm. Uh, yeah, this is back in 2011. Uh, again, if, just to make sure you heard him. If you show up with prostate cancer and you're 95, we should say, go and enjoy, have a nice day, live a long life. There's no cure and we can't do anything. If you're a young person, we should do something about it. Warning that uh, society is not yet willing to make those hard choices and it's going to bankrupt us if we don't. See what I mean about these liabilities called human beings that Mike Bloomberg has to manage? Prevent from... Uh, prevent us from bankrupting ourselves by worrying about uh, dear old mom or dad, grandma or grandpa. The debate stage tomorrow night might be useful to get a little bit more detail on uh, Bloomberg's perspective on government rationed care, which, of course, he and all of his compatriots support to varying degrees, but all going to the same place, government takeover of health care, elimination of private health insurance. Ultimately, where it's going can offer whatever payons to capitalism and, and the free enterprise he wants, uh, he'll uh, make those modifications needed to pursue the political power he seeks. That's clear. So on the debate stage tomorrow night, hey, uh, Caesar Mike, more specifics here. You use an example of a 95-year-old person with prostate cancer. So can you give us real details here? Please be specific on age and diagnoses and what the uh, cutoffs are. You know, if I'm so old and I have this condition, then my result is what? I get care, I don't get care. I get care, I get uh, shuffled off to the Zeke Emanuel checkout center. Don't you kind of want to know these details? 95-year-old with prostate cancer, sure, okay. Uh, I don't agree with that. I don't agree with just the whole attitude. But, but, but don't, don't, shouldn't we try to nail him down on some of these uh, details? That would seem judicious to me. You know, this is uh, just something that is punctuated throughout Bloomberg's career. The Wall Street Journal editorial board opined about uh, Bloomberg as the business nanny. Here again, you make the statement about I believe in capitalism and free enterprise because it's been very, very good to me. But uh, he doesn't want to return the favor to others. This uh, sustainability accounting standards board that he founded Bloomberg in 2011 as the Wall Street Journal opines, a shadow regulator for his policy agenda. The nine member standards board issues guidelines for what kinds of sustainability information corporations should report to investors. The uh, standards for this uh, government agency that Bloomberg created vary across 77 industries. Tracking the minutiae would prov will provide a lifetime of a job guarantee for corporate auditors. Consumer banks have to disclose how many no-cost retail checking accounts they provide to previously unbanked or underbanked customers. Investment houses must document loans that co incorporate environmental, social, and governance factors. Casinos have to report the share of employees who work uh, where smoking is allowed. Uh, the same agency requires businesses in high-paying industries to disclose workforce diversity. Some standards would require a wild goose chase, opines the Wall Street Journal. Literally, restaurants must report their share of cage-free eggs and pork produced without gestation crates. Just to give you a sense of, you know, they, when they talk about uh, Bloomberg being having sort of authoritarian impulses, uh, being uh, interested in um, governing the minutia of your life, 
including uh, those of fellow capitalists like him, quote unquote, this is what they're talking about. It's not just about big gulps. It's real matters that have a real impact on our real economy. I, I just have a hard time. I mean, again, uh, the uh, the effort to uh, to Bernie, although I'm not sure how many of his supporters of Democrat primary voters generally are taking their cues even from uh, CNN, much less uh, high minded left wing media outlets worrying about uh, what Bernie would mean for the party. And frankly, as Trump said, I, he'd rather face Bloomberg. Rather face Bloomberg because Bloomberg doesn't have a natural constituency. Well, when you have such a dismissive attitude toward other human beings, it's hard to see how he could have a natural consist, uh, constituency other than sort of like he's the least offensive, perhaps most competent uh, of the kleptocrats who uh, sought to uh, govern New York, New York City, that is. But this country ain't New York City. And I don't even think the identitarian, uh, the, the identitarians in the Democrat Party can look past those statements and just see him as the blunt instrument they need to take out President Trump. I don't see it. I certainly don't see it yet. Yeah, he's climbing in the national polls because of spending $400 million on TV. But that debate stage tomorrow night is going to be very instructive and very critical for him uh, as uh, he and Bernie Sanders do sort of a curb your enthusiasm debate. The more you'll know, this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, former San Francisco Giants first baseman Aubrey Huff has been canceled. Amazing. Uh, He's made statements, and these are for tweets that he made, that... uh, I guess if you don't have uh, Michael Bloomberg's money, you can't get away with. Aubrey Huff, who uh, led the uh, 2010 World Series champion Giants in home runs, is uh, not going to be part of the organization's uh, celebration of the 10-year anniversary of that championship season this summer. The team saying, Aubrey has made multiple comments on social media that are unacceptable and run counter to the values of our organization. Well, we appreciate the many contributions Aubrey made to the 2010 championship season. We stand by our decision. Aubrey Huff responding, well, if it wasn't for me, they wouldn't be having a reunion. But if they want to stick to their politically correct progressive bull jive, jive is not the word he used, that's fine. Just on the merits, he's right about that. And that was a good year for me in rotisserie baseball, in part because of Aubrey Huff's season. But anyway, I digress. Two tweets in particular apparently so offended the sensibilities of the San Francisco Giants front office that they just couldn't see their way fit to invite their starting first baseman to the 2020 reunion of the 2010 team. One was in November. He tweeted a picture of a gun range with the caption, Getting my boys trained up on how to use a gun in the unlikely event that Bernie Sanders beats Trump in the 2020 election. After the tweet, uh, he said, Huff tweeted that he was teaching his kids to shoot responsibly and that I didn't make a political. I did make a political opinion, but at no time did I threaten anyone's life. Yeah, I wonder uh, how those same Sanders supporters and offended parties 
reacted to a Sanders supporter actually shooting up that uh, GOP softball practice, right? In January, Huff tweeted about taking a flight to Iran to, quote, kidnap about 10 women to, quote, bring them back here as they fan us and feed us grapes, amongst other things. After the reaction to the Iran comment, which was not positive, he tweeted an image calling it a joke and adding, does nobody have a sense of humor anymore? Saying the way Iranian women are treated over there, I simply wanted to say I'd go there to rescue them and bring them back to the States, and they would be so thankful to escape that hell that they'd fan me and feed me grapes. Never said rape which, of course, was what people accused him of insinuating. Uh, here's the thing. Aubrey Huff, I mean, these are not uh, tweets that uh, I find particularly humorous. I wouldn't tweet. They're not, you know, they're not funny. I, I don't, they're just sort of bizarre. But, I mean, do you really look to uh, former San Francisco Giants first baseman for political commentary, for a tight comedy store quality set? Can uh, a baseball player just be a baseball player? And can you just sell, I mean, within the bounds of, you know, not uh, hurting anybody. And I mean, really hurting anybody. I mean, I'm not talking about offending them. Can you read that, roll your eyes and say, what the hell is he talking about? And just leave it there and say, yeah, I mean, he was part of that championship team. Of course, we're going to, he can, you know, come and celebrate. I don't have to like Aubrey Huff. I don't have to like any player on the team or different players on the teams for different reasons. Their political views, whatever. You have to make a public spectacle of barring him from the, reunion. I mean, isn't it just overkill? Don't you just find the idea of political litmus test for everything tedious and tiresome and dangerous and anti-intellectual and overwrought? Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Again, follow us at Dan Proft Show or at Dan Proft on Twitter. DanProftShow.com is the website. And uh, this is an issue we're going to continue discussing. The uh, brightest minds are on the case, and it is so important because of the impact that higher education has on American culture or what is to become of American culture. As uh, Andrew Sullivan wrote last year, a line I like to keep repeating, we all are on one big college campus now, meaning the culture that emanates from campus seeps into every corner of American society. Don't think you're insulated just because you're not on the faculty. And uh, in the last week, just some of the headlines. University of Utah sends free made-to-order pleasure packs, quote-unquote, to student dorms, just in time for Valentine's Day. Use your imagination. Woman at University of Virginia announces there's too many white people in the Multicultural Student Center. University of Illinois student government approves BDS, anti-Israel, and as well as anti-ICE resolution, the university is to divest immediately of, uh, of any investments in Israeli companies and uh, anything related to the operation of uh, federal law enforcement. The Extinction Rebellion vandals at Cambridge's grandest college, Trinity. Extinction Rebellion, these are people who want human beings to phase out procreation. Tore up the lawns outside of Trinity College, and the police stood there and watched. Forget the police for a minute, just talk about the approach of those kids on on campus. I mean, those stories, that's the last, uh, you know, since Friday. 
all over the country all the time. And uh, Arthur Millick has written a good piece on this, What to Do About American Higher Education, at uh, nationalaffairs.com. He writes, the funding sources that are the operational lifeblood of universities can no longer be justified. In fact, it seems likely the nation would be better off if the vast majority of America's more than 3,000 colleges and universities closed down. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by the aforesaid Arthur Millick, Associate Director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. Arthur, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be with you. You start uh, your uh, expansive piece reminding us what universities were supposed to be, were conceived to be once upon a time, and what they have now come to be, which is political operations mainly, as you describe it. Just, you know, give us the foundation here. What is the purpose of a university? You describe it uh, as threefold. Uh, what is it supposed to deliver and what it is? What is it in the business of delivering today? Sure. So as you put it, universities have tax-free status, just like churches, because the point is that they are to serve the public good. And the old view is that they serve the public good by doing three things specifically, their mission. And that is, number one, civic education. What that means is that it prepares citizens for citizenship. It teaches them rational habits of mind, and it teaches them uh, how to look up to something larger than themselves by giving them examples of human greatness in history, in literature, in all of the humanities to refine them up to a standard that suits our kind of civilization. In addition, universities would be the places where science takes place, not the only places, but an important place. And the reason that science is so important is because, according to Hamilton, it is our one most important comparative advantage vis-a-vis -vis the world. Innovation, technology is our source of wealth, and it's a replacement for conquest. We don't have to conquer because we can outcompete other nations. And the third purpose of the university is to take those rare few who are intellectually gifted and teach them liberal arts, which is basically philosophy. Teach them the true way of seeing the world. Under those circumstances, I'm not saying that the universities were ever all of them, really all of those three things, but that would be the highest achievement, to put those three ends together in service of the nation in one single place. Now, what they have become is largely the opposite. Not only do they not serve the goal of civic education by teaching that America is fundamentally racist in its DNA, that it has to be undermined, destroyed, transformed, Neither does it do liberal education anymore, which is the kind of philosophic education that I described. Other people have very intelligently documented that the sciences are also declining. Specifically, uh, they're declining because more and more money is given to the causes of identity politics and imposing basically uh, hiring schemes in the sciences that make universities hire by race instead of by talent or by capabilities and accomplishments of the faculty. And so what's happening is that quote from Andrew Sullivan was really nice that you said uh, that the whole nation is becoming a college campus. The taxpayers are essentially funding these institutions that are set to either transform or destroy America and have been very successful in doing that over the past 60 years. And we continue to be defrauded by these institutions. That's the problem. And, 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 it, and it seems like without consequence. I mean, unless we could get Jane Sanders to run all these colleges into the ground, it seems unlikely to change their course. I mean, you point out Alan Bloom's uh, seminal book 30 years ago now, more than 30 years ago, The Closing of the American Mind. 
and Thomas Sowell's book on higher education that came a few years later, and so uh, uh, Dinesh D'Souza, Illiberal Education, a few years after. I mean, there's been so many books over the last 30 years detailing the corruption and corrosion of quality in higher education along the lines you describe, and yet I can't think of a single example of a, of a, a school of any import that has really paid a price from its uh, alumni or from the students declining to attend that university anymore. It's very difficult. It seems most of these universities, which you say at the outset of your Pete, we should would probably be better off if they were shut down. They're not only not being shut down, they're thriving in spite of all of this information that has been disseminated. That's exactly right. Uh, here's the way to look at it. The universities were taken over in the 60s. So that's 60 years ago. And in that time, a lot of smart people have noticed the change in the problem. And conservatives have done everything under the sun to try and improve the circumstances in our, on our campuses. They have invested money into funding tenure lines, into founding new departments, into having off-campus or on-campus seminars, into sponsoring speakers. Everything has been done. And over the course of time, it has gotten worse to the point where conservatives have to beg to be heard on many campuses. What conservatives, and I, by the way, that's not a very good word. What I mean is people that actually care about civic and liberal education. What those people must realize is that we have lost. We have lost 100%. These universities are done. And the only way to reform them is not by trying more clever small ball policy issues, but by defunding them. These places are largely insolvent. And what I mean by that is that they live year to year on the basis of federally subsidized student loans. It's time to privatize those student loans. No bank, Wells Fargo, will not give somebody $300,000 to study grievance studies. It's out of the question. And so once you pull that money, many of these places will close down. And, uh, and in their place, as a replacement, private donors can step in, as they have in many places, and create new universities that are actually excellent. There's no reason, in other words, that 40% of college-age people should be going to college. In 1970, it was 20%. In 1895, which is the last year I could find, it was 10%. There's no reason that so many people should be going to college. And, and, in, and in, the, in the place, and I, I want to get back to this, but in place of the uh, government-directed uh, financing, underwriting, subsidizing of college tuition, uh, and the uh, exponential increase as compared to the rate of inflation over the last 30 years, uh, you would say the model is not only you know, private lenders um, and also arrangements like uh, Mitch Daniels has started to popularize at Purdue University, the, the income share agreement where you have investors connecting directly with students. Yeah, that's exactly right. Uh, there can be, and, and what, what has happened at Purdue is that the, the Purdue University itself becomes a lender. And what that means is that they have skin in the game. It means that you can't just accept a bunch of students totally unprepared for college who will drop out in one or two semesters because they shouldn't be there yet or perhaps at all. And so Purdue University has to use a careful eye in evaluating the students as opposed to the current model, whereby we have you know, hundreds, if not a thousand universities that essentially have open enrollment, which means that there are no standards applied to the graduate, oh, excuse me, to the, to, to the student. The applicant. And, yeah. what that is, and to the applicant, that's right. And, and what that means is that 
even if the kid drops out and the dropout rate is astronomical, it's something like 40%, uh, only 40% of students graduate in six years, something like that. And what happens is that the school, no matter what, if the student fails or succeeds, gets all of that money from tuition. And so they have an interest, therefore, in accepting applicants not qualified. I want to pick up on this uh, this point, uh, particularly as it as it pertains to uh, college endowments, uh, starting with the Ivy League. When we return, more with Arthur Millick, associate director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at Heritage, talking about preventing suicide by higher education. Back with more. Good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. We're back with Arthur Millick. He's the associate director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. He has written an expansive piece at nationalaffairs.com about uh, higher education and what is to be done. And the argument is it's a paradigm shift, defunding universities as they currently are constituted, making them uh, sink or swim on their own. And that includes, uh, my understanding from your piece, Arthur, pulling back federal research funding, as well as removing the uh, special tax treatment of endowment funds. So, for example, uh, Yale or Harvard's $30 billion endowment funds, they're going to have to use that those funds to finance their own student body rather than having it socialized across the American taxpayers. Yeah, that's right. So um, let's just say broadly, there are two kinds of universities. There's the top tier, Harvard, Yale, Stanford, which are very wealthy, which have endowments, like you said, in the number of $30 billion. And then there's the second tier, which have considerably less money. So the way that you get a lot of the second tier to close down is by pulling federally subsidized student loans. But that does not have the same effect on the top tier universities, which have these enormous endowments uh, on which they can sail on for you know, dozens of years. The way to get them to reform, to be moderated, to become more sensible is by pulling federal research funding. So when you look at a university like Yale, Yale receives every year, year after year, $500 million for research. Now, a lot of that research obviously is good. There's medical research, there's defense-related research, but other kinds of research there is very bad and very corrupt in my opinion. And so President Trump could pull uh, a large chunk of their funding, uh, their nonsense, the, the money that goes towards research nonsense. And when they buck, and of course they will, they have to buck, the president could say, okay, that's fine, we're going to take all the funding away. And we're going to give it to a well-behaving university that serves the public good, like MIT or Caltech. And if they don't want it, then he can open a new uh, uh, federal lab that can do all of that same research and not give these top-tier universities the cover of science to cover up for the radicalism that is taking place on their campuses. It also seems to me he's got a, a real good argument. Anybody would have a real good argument to say, why the heck – are uh, people in um, Chicago subsidizing uh, all of the uh, well-heeled uh, and the kids of the well-heeled at Harvard uh, and and vice versa? You know, why why are people in Massachusetts subsidizing people going to Northwestern? I mean, I, you know, end that altogether. You sink or swim on your own. You rely on your alumni. 
you deal with your state governments as you see fit. We've got 50 laboratories of democracy. But getting the federal government out of this whole game of being gamed by these powerful universities. Yeah, that's exactly right. And in a certain way, it's worse than just a wealth transfer. In other words, it's worse than just, you know, some uh, family, some decent, hardworking family somewhere in the Midwest subsidizes an elite education. It's worse because, as I really like that quote that you said from Andrew Sullivan, it's worse because these top universities are imitated by the lower tier universities. And so when those universities went all out identity politics, those doctrines were spread to the decent parts of America, like the Midwest or the South, through their universities. And so it's it's that the kids of those well-meaning patriotic Americans are being propagandized on their local campuses, which seem to be innocent, but many of them are not. And, you know, you have models out there that could be replicated, like Hillsdale College, which doesn't accept any federal funding uh, and uh, is doing quite well. It's it's a you know, sort of real uh, beacon of hope on the scene, on the landscape. But there are other good schools out there, too, that could uh, survive and thrive in a more and probably do better in a more competitive environment where people are doing a little bit more comparison shopping rather than just uh, sort of relying on the status associated with the brands of particular universities or because mom or dad went there. And I think, you know, if you articulate a case of why it doesn't make sense to believe that, for example, where I went to school, Northwestern is what it was when. Uh, you know, your parents went to school 40 or 50 years ago, then I I think you'd have a lot of people fold in. And maybe this is something you do in a lame duck term, but um, to take on the the alumni networks of all these uh, powerful institutions. But it seems to me that that's the only way that that change is not going to come from the inside, despite the best efforts of the National Association of Scholars and and the the small fraction of classically liberal professors on college campuses. Right. No, I agree with all of that. And, um, you know, change won't come from the inside because the universities are the left's crown jewel. This is what has caused all of these innumerable changes in America over the past 60 years, and they will not give them up without a fight. That's 100% the case. The second part is exactly as you say. So much of this so much of the, the, the support for universities, their seeming respectability, is because of parents who don't want to realize, A, that that school, that Northwestern, ain't the same as it was 30 years ago. Mm-hmm. Or B, because they want to brag that my son goes to yes. my son goes to Harvard Status. Uh, to all of their friends and don't want to see the rot. It's, it's all right. It's, all, it's, 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 it's a, you know, what, what drove the Varsity Blues scandal, the need for status, right? You've got to get into one of these universities that have profile because— I want to tell my friends that, but also because I want you in this particular social milieu where you make particular contacts that will benefit you after college. And there needs to be a real real, uh, reordering of the American mind, if you will, to paraphrase Bloom. When it comes to conceiving college, uh, it it would seem to me, I I mean, you know, I think unbeknownst to most Americans and most English majors, uh, there was a study recently that found that 47 of the top 50 ranked universities in this country do not require any Shakespeare in order to major in English. I mean, how, how is that possible? And, and, and then because he's a dead, he's a dead white male. There's nothing <laughs> no, to learn from yeah, him. I know. But I mean, how is that? How does anybody who is an English major, anybody who graduated from college hear that and say, uh, these are institutions we should treat seriously? That, that is exactly. just not a serious position. 
the rot is at the very core, and they cannot be reformed internally. We've lost. It's over. We need to rethink our strategy if we want to save the nation. And and so uh, people should be pressuring their uh, members of Congress, uh, as well as state legislators, since there's so much state funding tied up in universities, too, to um, start tightening the purse strings. That's what so you would that's what they, you would argue. If there was one thing you could do, tell and start with your alma mater, you know, if, as relevant uh, and say, you know, I want my alma mater defunded by federal tax dollars. So in principle, I agree with that. I think that in practice it won't work. I've talked to a lot of members of Congress who you can explain in granular detail how corrupt their local state university is. And they still love the football. Yeah. And they still their kids go there and they are so deeply entrenched in those communities. So then how do, how do so how do we get from here to there? That's the you know, I mean, it's one thing to say these are the things that should happen. You should defund, should close these places down or allow them to fail on their own. How do we get from here to that environment? So I think the first step is to humiliate them. Um, and my whole strategy depends on a president like Trump who will make it a campaign policy to speak out against these universities and explain basically the arguments that I just made. These places are thoroughly corrupt. They actively seek to undermine the nation um, and then expose some of the research that they do, some of the research that's going on at Yale or at Stanford or at Northwestern. Only after you turn public opinion against them will the members of Congress follow. They will not lead in this kind of stuff. Makes sense. He is Arthur Millick. He's the associate director of the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics at the Heritage Foundation. And I will uh, tweet out his piece again, Preventing Suicide by Higher Education. Make sure you do read it. Arthur, thanks so much for joining us. Enjoyed it. My pleasure. Me too. Bye-bye. You're listening to The Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. And uh, somebody always has to be the bad example. State of California in stiff competition with the state of Illinois to be the nation's bad example when it comes to public policy generally. And, of course, that would include matters like energy policy. You would think that in a state uh, so uh, that so likes to virtue signal, pass resolutions on college campuses, demand divestiture from uh, unpopular, unpolitically correct businesses and industries, that uh, California wouldn't want to continue importing 70 percent of its oil from Iraq and, in particular, Saudi Arabia. I mean, what the killing of Jamal Khashoggi, how could they be propping up uh, MBS? But uh, that's what they're doing because uh, Gavin Newsom, in his infinite wisdom there, and in uh, an effort to satisfy all the sentimental barbarians in the Golden State as a, a moratorium on nearly all oil production in California. Now, how's that working out as people flee that state like it's on fire, not an oil fire? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by Peggy Grandy. She is a chairwoman of At World for Brexit, executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan from 1989 to 1999 and author of The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan, so much for having me on the program. This piece that you wrote for RealClearPolitics.com is just sort of another one that we file under the heading of Why People Are Leaving California. It is a big file. Yes, California, like Illinois, I think we fight for being the tip of the spear of bad ideas 
And that's what we're seeing coming out of California. And the hypocrisy here is on full display, particularly with this issue. You know, to your point, in a state that um, indicates itself and leads the charge, it thinks, in clean, green energy, why are we importing 70% of our oil into a state that has an abundance of natural resources? Well, the president has led the nation on a pathway to energy independence and, in fact, has become a net exporter of oil. Here in California, we're importing 70% of our oil through the Straits of Hormuz, in particular, from Saudi Arabia, from Iraq, and also from Central and South America. So talk about environmental abuses and the hypocrisy of wanting clean and yet creating additional carbon footprint by the transporting of the oil, um, not only to California, but then distributing all over California that already has an abundance of this resource right here. Those uh, uh, Google green cars are not uh, not ready for mass distribution yet then? That's the issue? <laughs> Silicon Valley's not keeping well, up with the times? We know that the reality is, even if you shut down all oil production in California, that doesn't eliminate oil demand. And so we are on a pathway toward a different, cleaner, greener energy um, here in California. And California, in fact, is leading the nation in that charge and will continue to. Um, but just because we shut down oil production here doesn't mean that our planes and our buses and our trains and our trucks are going to stop tomorrow. And that includes the governor's motorcade, right? <laughs> of course, well, of course, the motorcade. And and don't don't, don't uh, the transition to uh, to have thirty percent of the state's electricity come from renewable energy sources. Um, isn't that in part the result of uh, mandates making housing significantly more expensive in California? Of course. And we know that that is not a substitute for the oil industry to exist. There's certain things that only oil and natural gas can do that we have not yet developed the technology for. And so California will continue to lead the way in that. But in the meantime, uh, we need to have a frank conversation if we really want to be aware of human rights abuses, of environmental standards, of a national security risk. I mean, here's, here's the reality. We're putting the nation at risk by tying ourselves to the Middle East in dangerous ways that are unnecessary. We have the resources here. We should be using them rather than relying on people all around the world that don't always share California or the nation's um, best interests. And so why are we putting ourselves in a position when we don't need to of tying ourselves to the Middle East in ways like that? And really the hypocrisy of not then having the cleanest, greenest energy is taking place as well. I, I got to ask you because you spent so much time with President Reagan, and I know it's been a spell since he was the governor of California, but but what has happened to California over the last 30 years? And is there any any prospect for a GOP comeback in that state uh, based on performance, if nothing else, that that people may be willing to consider, um, uh, you know, having a two party system in California? Well, Ronald Reagan, you know, I don't know how he would weigh into this issue in particular, but I do know that he always believed that the role of government was to get off the backs of people and out of the way and let let them innovate and invent and invest and expand and be creative in creating and expanding industries all over this great state. And so Ronald Reagan would have been about less regulation, not more regulation. Peggy Grandy, chairwoman for At World for Brexit, At World for Brexit, executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan from 89 to 99. 
and author of The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years. Peggy, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me on. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. In 1996, John Tierney wrote a piece for the New York Times entitled Recycling is Garbage. He uh, writes in a more recent piece, and it was uh, obvious then that the cheapest way to dispose of trash was to bury it in a landfill and that there would never be a shortage of landfill space, yet people were clamoring to pay extra for the privilege of sorting their own waste. I concluded that recycling was a sacrament to expiate guilt, a rite of atonement for the sin of buying too much. And uh, he notes that he subsequently set a record for hate mail with uh, that piece. I think he has been working from an undisclosed landfill location ever since. But we're happy to have him join us. John Tierney, contributing editor to City Journal, former reporter or columnist at The New York Times and co-author of the new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for inviting me. Well, um, you uh, were talking about recycling generally back more than two decades ago. In a more recent piece, you uh, talked specifically about the zeitgeist behind banning plastic bags and plastic straws. And we had a presidential candidate, Joe Biden, recently say that he supports a national ban on plastic bags. Uh, You saw the picture of the turtle with the straw in his nose. You've heard from the politicians. Uh, Why isn't that good enough for you? Well, the plastic ban is actually makes even less sense than, you know, than the whole recycling religion. I mean, you know, the recycling religion was based on the idea that we'd save money by recycling and that we really, you know, and that we were running out of these resources. And neither of those is true. And it's become so expensive that a lot of towns are now just giving up on it. But uh, the war against plastic, these these plastic straw bans and, 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 and the fanaticism about recycling plastic is actually not only expensive, not only inconvenient, but it's really bad for the environment. Because when you recycle plastic, there's no market for it in the United States at all. So much of it just goes to the landfill anyway because they have nothing else to do with it. But if they do actually try to recycle it, it gets shipped to Asia. It used to go to China. China said no uh, a couple of years ago. So now it goes to countries like uh, Malaysia and Indonesia. And the problem is, is that these countries, they're the ones who are putting the plastic in the ocean that is ending up in that turtle, you know, with that turtle. It doesn't come from the United States. You know, the the great uh, Pacific Ocean garbage patch, which has become infamous, something like 86 percent of the uh, of the land-based waste, about half of it actually just comes from fishing vessels, but but the rest of it, you know, um, it nearly all comes from Asia, and it's from these countries that, that don't have very good waste processing systems. And so when you know when we recycle something and it gets sent over there, you know, some of it just ends up in an illegal dump, some of it gets burned, which is you know terrible for people's health as they're burning these toxins, and some of it just ends up you know going into into rivers there, and then it goes into the ocean. And and we're t- we're told biodegradability is right next to godliness. And in point of fact, I love this piece in City Journal that you wrote because it's 180 degrees from everything that everybody's constantly told, uh, really lectured. Biodegradability, the lack of biodegradability for plastic bags, that's good news. 
I mean, it is because it means that they're not releasing any any greenhouse gases into the atmosphere the way that you know the paper does and that and that other products do when they decompose. Now, when they get buried in a landfill carefully, where they make sure to try and capture those gases, that's fine. But plastic, you know, it's great. It, I mean, it doesn't affect the water. You know, there's no threat at all to groundwater. There's no threat. It's not. It's not releasing anything into the environment at all. It's basically it's made from natural gas. You know, these plastics bags and these plastic grocery bags and straws and which came out of the ground and it's going back in the ground where you know it's not going to affect the environment anymore so in that sense it, you know i mean if you really care about the turtle you should put the plastic in the trash bin not the recycling bin because it may end up in the ocean if you send it in the recycling bin so let's go to the premise you know uh, uh challenge the premise of those who are uh a part of this uh, uh, this mob to ban plastic straws and bags and, and tax them otherwise, as is done in Illinois. Uh, the goal, ostensibly, their stated goal, reduce carbon emissions and plastic pollution. Okay, so if we want to do that, what do we do? If we want to reduce carbon emissions, we're much better off using plastic grocery bags than the, uh, than the alternatives. Paper bags have a much bigger carbon footprint that takes a lot more energy to, uh, to to produce them and to ship them, they take up a lot more room in the landfill, and and they do you know there's some and they do release gases as they decompose. Um, cotton tote bags for the grocery are, are are terrible because you have to um, they have such a big carbon footprint to produce them that you have to use them hundreds of times in order to make up for it, and people just don't do that. They also, by the way, are not all that sanitary unless you wash them every week. Um, you know, there's been more, uh, uh, you know, people uh, reporting to emergency rooms and, uh, and dying from, from foodborne illnesses in, in, in San Francisco since it, it enacted the plastic ban. And, in fact, it's been calculated that by banning those thin plastic grocery bags, San Francisco, it, it increased its greenhouse emissions uh, associated with grocery bags. It increased the greenhouse emissions by at least 9% and possibly more than doubled its greenhouse emissions. So if you care about the atmosphere, about keeping carbon out of the atmosphere, you, you, the last thing you want to do is ban, is, is ban bags like that. And it's just, I mean, it's nonsensical that uh, other people do this. And as I say in the City Journal article, it really has... You know, I mean, it's, you know, people say that's their motivation, but but it's really, I think it's a great desire for the, our kind of new nobility and our new, you know, sort of religious movement to basically dictate to other people. Yeah. And, the, you know, the whole, go ahead. Uh, well, I mean, just going back to the Times piece from 1996, you uh, uh, perhaps a little bit ahead of the learning curve on the idea of environmentalism as a religion and things like recycling programs as the religion's sacraments. So what have you observed about this movement over the last uh, three decades, and particularly here as uh, we talk today, uh, just after Jeff Bezos has pledged $10 billion to save the earth by, you know, investing in people who are promoting these sorts of things that turn out not to be particularly true or particularly helpful? You know, it, it's a movement like uh, that. It's a religious movement that, that enables people to feel virtuous, and and it especially appeals, I think, to people who don't have traditional religions. You know, it's a substitute movement for that, and and it's also a way for people to, you know, to to, to feel virtuous by you know by bossing other people around and saying I'm doing this, and it's all and it's a way to expiate their guilt. You know, I mean. Um, you know, these celebrities and, and these billionaires who, who are jetting around the world, you know, with enormous carbon footprints. You know, Queen Elizabeth banned plastic straws at, 
at her estates. Well, she those she has a half dozen estates. She must you know, she may have the world's largest carbon footprint. Um, so, but she can feel virtuous, you know, by doing that. He is John Tierney, contributing editor to the City Journal, former reporter and columnist at the New York Times. Check out his piece at City Journal, The Perverse Panic Over Plastic, as well as his new book, The Power of Bad, How the Negativity Effect Rules Us and How We Can Rule It. John, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is The Dan Prof Show. Time now for another reason why Dan Puff is single. Yeah, and in this segment, again, this is from my perspective why I'm single, not from the uh, distaff side's perspective. A couple of uh, examples of uh, why Dan Prof is single. Well, violence. I don't want to be part of violence. A um, woman in uh, Nigeria, identified as 32-year-old Cheetah, has... Uh, been arraigned for uh, the allegedly continuously assaulting her husband for not showing her enough commitment to their marriage by getting her pregnant, leaving him <laughs> leaving him scared to return home. She began assaulting her husband in 2018 and apparently just uh, never stopped two years. And the police had to finally intervene. The accused uh, assaulted her husband after lock after locking him up in their apartment on December 22nd. She reportedly used a frying spoon to smash his head and face, causing him grievous inter- in- injuries. She continued beating her husband despite warnings from the police. She's very upset that she's not pregnant. Also assaulting a policewoman in the process. So, I mean, I just, uh, you know, it's just the proportional response. I mean, I I understand she uh, feels her biological clock ticking. But um, hmm. uh, a, a related story, uh, a woman in South Africa. This is a global phenomenon here. You know, this is not confined to the uh, 48 contiguous in Hawaii and Alaska. A uh, South uh, African woman set her husband uh, alight in their home in uh, Port Alford, Eastern Cape, killed him. He was in the hospital for two weeks, submitted with third-degree burns before he succumbed to his injuries. His uh, mom saying that he died a good man because even with all the pains, he asked me to forgive his wife of four months. Four months? Boy, short honeymoon. Uh, Here's what went down told me that his uh, his mom, recounting what uh, she was told, told me that his wife was angered when an empty bottle accidentally fell on her feet while they were chilling with friends at their place. The wife was so angry, and my son asked them to uh, go to the bedroom to sort things out because they had visitors. As they were arguing, she poured him with petrol, which was uh, otherwise used for to power the lawnmower, and lit him on fire. And uh, then she ran away. Ultimately, she was found and arrested. But those disproportional responses to a conflict in the household. I mean, I'm all, you know, you worry about being lonely and wanting to connect with people. And, you know, countries are coming up with uh, and uh, businesses coming up with the innovative ways to address that uh, that void in the lives of, uh, you know, lonely guys like Steve Martin and Charles Grodin and me. The Jumbo Supermarket, Jumbo Supermarket in the Netherlands, uh, starting at Chat Checkout and All Together Coffee Corner, the idea of a social corner at the supermarket where uh, elders can sip coffee, meet strangers, talk about their day, uh, even seek help. And it's uh, drawing uh, quite a following, uh, people you know, congregating at the local supermarket to uh, chat with strangers and, you know, 
fill that uh, social interaction void. That's a lot safer than worrying about getting beat about the head and neck area by a frying spoon or being lit on fire. And that's why Dan Proft is saying it. Fake news. He's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. You can follow us on Twitter at Dan Prof Show or at Dan Prof. Website danprofshow.com and on Facebook uh, at Dan Prof Show. Same thing. Uh, interesting uh, piece by Byron York over the Washington Examiner. Well, who's complaining about investigations now? You know, let the investigation uh, take its course, allow. Special Prosecutor Mueller and his team to do their job in on, on their time frame. Let this play out. Let the congressional committees do their job, exercise their oversight. Let the investigations play out. Let the Southern District of New York do their investigation and let the investigations play themselves out. But when it comes to the Durham investigation, ho, ho. <laughs> when it comes to the Department of Justice, Doing its job? Well, no, it's wholly illegitimate, don't you see, because uh, A.G. Barr is acting as the Trump's personal lawyer and not the attorney general of the United States. Mm -hmm. Uh, Each investigation, uh, writes York, uh, about uh, uh, publicized leaks that led to many headlines and the discussion on cable TV. Anti-Trump voices stood firmly in support of more and more detailed inquiries of the president and his allies. But now, as Barr looks back to 2016 via the uh, Durham investigation, the uh, U.S. attorney he appointed to head that up. Boy, the uh, same voices that were saying, let it play out, let these prosecutors do their jobs, let the investigation reach its natural conclusion – Now, the power to investigate is the power to destroy, said former U.S. Attorney Gregory Brower to The Washington Post. The ability to simply point to a pending investigation against a person can have devastating effects on that person and can have a potential political benefit to the person orchestrating the investigation. Oh, well, golly gee, U.S. Attorney Greg, you don't say. So um, by that standard, which were the people who the— Uh, pending investigation had devastating effects on and which were the people who uh, gained a potential political benefit over the last three years of endless investigations into President Trump and uh, everyone who has ever had a cup of coffee with him. I mean, the the hubris. Uh, NBC's uh, yapping little terrier Chuck Todd. President Trump appears now to be using his power with an assist from the Justice Department to exact revenge on some perceived political enemies. All this is because the president commented on the Roger Stone sentencing recommendation uh, and because of his tweets in the direction of uh, legitimate targets of investigation, like Andy McCabe, who I guess when you're uh, a FBI guy, 
that means just having to say you're sorry for lying to the FBI, different than Michael Flynn, different than George Papadopoulos, different than Roger Stone. Weaponizing the Justice Department against perceived enemies. This is uh, what is reverberating through the Beltway big government echo chamber. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, Byron York properly asks, where were these individuals over the last three years? Where were they when the Steele dossier burst onto the scene with its unsupported allegations leaked to undermine Trump as soon as he took office? Where were they when, uh, as we now know, the FBI used false information to surveil Carter Page? Where were they when the Justice Department cooked up a Logan Act violation to uh, entrap General Flynn, arguably? Hmm. Was the Justice Department being used to go after perceived political enemies then? Chuck? Anderson Cooper, U.S. attorneys in the in the tank for the Democrats. Yeah, they had devastating effects on people, didn't they? U.S. Attorney Brower on Flynn, on Page, on Papadopoulos. Do they matter? Is there a standard here or just your political interests of the day? Right. And on this score, by the way. You know, as you understand, uh, I know our listeners do, but you may want to share it with some of your less informed friends, that uh, the Department of Justice is part of the executive branch. So uh, Trump could be just about as overt as he wants to be with respect to justice. Yeah. And uh, the idea that uh, a president would comment on goings on at justice, the idea that that is something that is new, that is violative of our constitutional order. It may not be good, and I don't endorse it, but it's not new. It's just that, as Alan Dershowitz explained over the weekend in an interview with Breitbart Radio, Trump tweets what previous presidents whisper. And, oh boy, the, uh, by the way, he's got uh, quite the allegation against President Obama that, according to Dershowitz, will be made public in the not-too-distant future as part, of a, as part of a complaint. Listen to what Dershowitz had to say. There, there was a lot of White House control of the Justice Department during the Kennedy administration, and um, I don't think we saw very many liberal professors uh, arguing against that. Uh, I have some information as well about the um, about the Obama administration, which will be uh, disclosed uh, in a lawsuit at some point, but I'm not prepared to disclose it now, about how President Obama personally um, uh, asked the FBI to investigate uh, somebody on behalf of George Soros, who is a close ally of his. We've seen this kind of White House influence on the Justice Department virtually in every Justice Department. Um, the difference is this president is much more overt about it. He tweets about it. President Obama whispered uh, to um, the Justice Department about it. And, uh, and, and I don't think these thousand former Justice Department officials would pass the shoe on the other foot test. Maybe some of them would, but a good many of them wouldn't. And let's be very clear about the constitutionality. The president could make a decision to really control the Justice Department. He could decide who to prosecute, who not to prosecute. He shouldn't do it. It hasn't been done since Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson did do it. Uh, We've seen this throughout our history, 
you said that George Soros asked Barack Obama to have his Justice Department investigate somebody? We're, we're, that's going to come out in a lawsuit uh, in the near future. Yeah, that is not unusual. Uh, people whisper to presidents all the time. Presidents whisper to Justice Department all the time. It's very common. It's wrong. Whoever does it, but it's common. And we shouldn't think that it's unique to any particular uh, president. I have in my possession the actual 302 form, which documents this issue, and it will at the right time come out, but I'm not free to disclose it now because it's uh, a case that's not yet been filed. That's a major claim by Dershowitz, and I agree, by the way, with the standard of analysis, too. I'm not endorsing necessarily President Trump's tweeting on the topics. I don't think it's been helpful, particularly in the case of McCabe, and he was chastised by a federal judge, a Reagan appointee, actually, for his tweeting on the topic. So just because you have the authority to do something doesn't mean you always have to exercise it. That the standard that Dershowitz sets forth is proper, and so everybody should be held to it. But that's not what uh, all of these individuals profiled in the Byron York piece are doing, and you know so many more like them inside the Beltway, where the ends justify the means when it comes to Trump and previous positions on other politicians are irrelevant. But in addition to that, Dershowitz, I mean, he's, he's asserting real evidence, a 302 that documents Soros, uh, Obama initiating an FBI investigation into someone at the behest of Soros. So we'll see. He'll have to prove that up. But could you imagine? Could you imagine if someone was presently asserting that they have a copy of a FBI interview, an FBI uh, uh, memorialized uh, fact sheet? That asserts that President Trump initiated an FBI investigation into somebody at the behest of uh, a Koch brother or, uh, you know, Bernie Marcus, the the founder of Home Depot or some other conservative mega donor. Can you imagine what the human cry? We'd 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 already have the articles of impeachment drafted from Sunday. They'd be ready to go. Schiff and Nadler would be ready to get the gang back together. Remarkable. Remarkable. And where were these people for the last three years? Great point. That's a great point that he makes. This is the Dan Prop Show. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show president trump was out with a new ad that debuted during the daytona 500 yesterday America is great, better than ever. Under President Trump's leadership, we are racing to new heights. Millions of new jobs, rising wages, record low unemployment, securing our border, protecting our country, and respecting our veterans. Most of all, we are proud to be Americans, proud of our country, our families, 
and our flag. God bless America. And the best is yet to come. I'm Donald J. Trump, and I approve this message. Still, it's a real good bet. The best is yet to come. I, I, best I, I, do, I do like that because it makes me think of Sinatra. Maybe he should uh, see if he could get uh, the chairman's estate to uh, authorize use of that song. Uh, New Heights, though, is the name of the ad. New Heights also with debt and deficits, trillions more in both categories. Is that a problem? I don't know. Econ courses I took at uh, university seemed to indicate that it was. Uh, gosh, even at Northwestern, I talking to the, one of the leading Keynesian economists of the time, Bob Eisner. Even he wouldn't go quite as far as some of the economists of today are going and is saying that 20 some odd trillion dollars in debt, another $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, an annual trillion dollar deficits from Obama to Trump. Not a big deal. You know, we're in the uh, days of easy money and low interest rates. What me worry? Well, Brian Reitel is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former chief economist to Senator Rob Portman from Ohio and staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and uh, Economic Growth. He has penned a piece for uh, the Manhattan Institute suggesting that uh, debt and deficits still do matter, that the principles of economics are still in force. We're pleased to be joined by Brian Reitel now. Brian, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Glad to be here. You know, I mean, we're here in Illinois, so of course... We know that unfunded liabilities and borrowing against tomorrow to pay for yesterday is not a problem. And the people seem to like it. So, uh, Brian, why not give the people what they want? Because eventually the bill comes due. You know, right now you hear a lot of people say, well, as long as interest rates remain low, the debt won't matter much. The problem is even if interest rates remain low, we're about to be hit with $80 trillion in additional borrowing over the next 30 years. And that's if you assume peace, prosperity, low interest rates, and no new government programs. So the rosiest scenario possible is $80 trillion in additional debt over the next 30 years. In that case, even if interest rates never rise, the interest on a debt that big will still consume 42% of all federal taxes in 30 years. And if interest rates do rise... Every point they go up will cost $11 trillion over 30 years. You don't even have to assume a double tripling of interest rates to see how completely unsustainable the numbers are because of this massive deluge of debt that is going to continue growing. As um, my read of Milton Friedman, or as AOC calls him, Milton Keynes, that sort of uh, government spend and debt load crowds out private investment. But I'm being told by a lot of economists today that that just simply isn't the case. So we can continue to grow in spite of this debt load that we're carrying. What's the truth? Right now, it's not really crowding out much investment. The world's awash in, in, in investment. But again, first, I would say add $80 trillion in borrowing <laughs> to the $20 trillion we have. I'm not so sure you can say that's not going to crowd out some investment. Additionally, I would say even if it doesn't crowd out investment, the point, again, is that it's still going to force up huge tax increases. Because, again, even if interest rates remain low, the interest it was 1.2% of GDP a couple of years ago. It's going to go to 7.6% of GDP in 30 years, even under low rates. 
you would have to either increase the payroll tax 18 percentage points or create nearly a 40% value-added tax just to pay the bill due to the rising costs, rising deficits, and rising interest. And that, of course, assumes no structural changes, which is what you would argue for, that you need to right-size government or decide that you're going to tax at those levels if you want to finance the amount of government we have. Exactly. And if you want to know what's driving the $80 trillion in borrowing, it's actually quite remarkable. According to the Congressional Budget Office, over the next 30 years, the Social Security and Medicare systems will run a $103 trillion shortfall, while the rest of the government will run a $23 trillion surplus. So if you're trying to figure out why we're being hit with this deluge of debt that might bury us, it's not complicated. Social Security and Medicare shortfalls, $103 trillion over 30 years. You uh, talk about interest rates a bit because of the impact it has on the debt load that we're carrying, the interest payments that need to be made. You suggest that there are some reasons to believe that despite uh, what the Fed is doing, that there was, is coming pressure for interest rates to rise. You know, interest rates are low right now. A couple reasons interest rates may rise is first off the debt itself. Again, that raises interest rates. And even if it's being counteracted by other factors, the economic consensus is that when the debt gets that big, it'll raise interest rates about three and a half percentage points. The other factors that are lowering interest rates may not continue to, to lower them enough to balance that out. And in fact, some factors that might raise interest rates are things like the baby boomers drawing down savings. The more the baby boomers eventually retire, they draw down their savings, they draw down their 401ks. That means there's less savings out there in the economy and interest rates go up. Additionally, emerging markets could push up interest rates if they end up attracting investment that used to go to America. Any increase in economic growth or inflation could raise interest rates. I think it's really tough to say as debt creates more pressure on interest rates, you're going to need other factors to actually push it back down, they might actually be pushing it back up even further. We're talking a lot about the downside of uh, debt and spending beyond your means. But I know from Nancy Pelosi, noted economist, that unemployment benefits are stimulative. And I know from the Keynesian dogma that every dollar the government spends has a positive multiplier. So um, all of this uh, stimulative impact of piling up debt, uh, are you factoring that in? There is nothing really stimulative about piling up debt. I always tell people who think government is stimulative that you know every dollar government injects into the economy must first be taxed or borrowed out of the economy. But even for a Keynesian economist, things like unemployment are stimulative only temporarily during a recession. In a full employment economy or over the long term, term, those policies are not stimulative. And in fact, the policies that are creating the debt, Social Security, Medicare, and even new proposals such as Medicare for All, those are not going to increase economic growth because those are transfer payments. Those are financing current consumption. If you want economic growth, you need investment. And in fact, a lot of government investment spending, infrastructure spending, is probably going to be squeezed out by these transfer payments for health care, transfer payments for Social Security. We're essentially going into debt to finance current consumption rather than investment. This is not going to increase the economy, and it could actually squeeze the investment spending that we need. As an old state senator, a friend of mine used to say, 
say about Illinois, which has been doing this for 50 years, is we're essentially paying for our mortgage with a credit card, right? That's exactly what we're doing. And in Europe, I mean, I, I know Illinois finance as well. My wife grew up in the Chicago suburbs, and I'm from Wisconsin. Ah. And I think... We're seeing this a lot in Illinois with the pension problems, and eventually the bill comes due. Brian Rydell, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute, former chief economist to Senator Rob Portman of Ohio and staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. Check out his piece on debt and deficits, if you can stomach it, Manhattan Institute. I'll tweet it out. Brian, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listening to the Dan Proft Show on the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show and uh, updating uh, all things coronavirus, COVID nineteen for you uh, virologists out there. Dr. Anthony Fauci, who has been America's point man on infectious diseases for about the last 35 years, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, gave uh, an extended interview to uh, USA Today on the state of play. It's instructive, uh, instructive, just sort of status of the incident of cases. He uh, reports that uh, while China is in very difficult straits, not so much the rest of the world, 70,000 cases in China. And nearly 1,800 deaths. The rest of the world, about 30 countries have a total of about 500 cases and three deaths. In the United States, we've had 15 cases, 13 of which are travel, two of which are spouses of travelers. And then as of yesterday morning, of course, 14 additional ones because of the people that were flown in from the Diamond Prince's cruise ship that was uh, evac'd by uh, America after being greenlighted, that evacuation being greenlighted by our State Department. Uh, he was asked about uh, quarantining the passengers aboard the Diamond Princess in Japan. Was that a mistake? He uh, says, Dr. Fauci, the um, original statement was that the best thing to do with these people is to keep them safely quarantined in an infection control manner on the ship. As it turned out, that was very ineffective in preventing spread on the ship, right, more than 400 people. So the quarantine process failed. I mean, I'd like to sugarcoat and try to be diplomatic about it, but it failed. There were people getting infected on that ship, so something went awry in the process of quarantining that ship. I don't know what it was, but a lot of people got infected, and, of course, that's a problem. Uh, Yeah, 454, I think, was the uh, number on the ship. He um, uh, was asked about the 14 passengers who tested positive as they were being evacuated, let back into the United States. Uh, Why were they let back into the United States on the charter flights? Uh, We had a lot of discussion about what's the safest thing to do. Literally every hour, there's another four or five people infected. It got to the point where we decided to get them off the ship. He uh, said that the critical issue is that they really wanted to get out of Japan and to our own facility to be treated here because it was amazingly stressful to them. Many of them were elderly. Many of them had underlying conditions. They just wanted to get home, and we felt it was safe enough on the plane to get them home without infecting anybody else. So it was a tough call, but you can understand the logic behind it. Um, And he's not critical of those uh, people who stayed behind, who elected to stay behind on the ship. Uh, What happens next? Uh, So uh, if you're infected, uh, explains Dr. Fauci, if you're infected, you're not really technically quarantined. You're isolated and cared for for your infection. If you're exposed and we're trying to find out if you're infected, then you're quarantined. So a quarantine is someone who's suspected of being infected, whereas isolation of someone and taking care of them is when they are infected. So for 14 days, this whole group is out of action. Just pulling back because I got to tell you, my... uh, 
co-host on the morning show I do in Chicago is uh, one of these people that has been thrown into hysterics by the prospect of coronavirus and the pronouncements uh, over the weekend that uh, it is expected to make landfall in the next couple of four weeks where we'll have significantly more cases than we do now, which is right in an infinitesimal 15 cases. Um, so, you know, how severe is this? How dangerous? So you look at the mortality rate. The mortality rate of seasonal flu is about one-tenth to two-tenths of a percent at the most, said Fauci. If you look at the new coronavirus, you do the math, it's sticking right at 2%. But he argues the actual rate could be much lower because there are many, many either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic people in China that don't get counted in the denominator. So they're overstating the lethality of coronavirus is what the doctor is saying. And he doesn't believe, interestingly, he doesn't believe that China is fudging the numbers, or at least not anymore. Uh, he uh, just restated that he, he doesn't believe the 2% mortality rate because of the way they're counting. He uh, provided also some comparison. Uh, SARS, which we remember from 2002, not nearly as transmissible as this. 8,000 8, cases over a year. Uh, and, of course, we have 10 times that many in just two months. But the SARS mortality rate was 9 to 10 percent. MERS, that mortality rate is about 36 percent. He makes the point that it's not always this way, but with most respiratory-borne viruses, usually the more transmissible you are, the less the mortality, the higher the mortality, the less transmissible. So this is very transmissible, and it has a very low mortality rate. Uh, he also um, suggests that the CDC, Centers for Disease Control, trying to find out if there are cases in the U.S. that we don't know about. They're doing a sort of sentinel surveillance in five cities, New York, L.A., San Fran, Seattle, and Chicago, of people who come into clinics with flu-like symptoms but who don't test positive for the flu to try to get as much of a handle on it as possible, saying that uh, the CDC tests are actually pretty good and pretty accurate. Uh, and uh, so just, just a little bit of a, a backgrounder here. Uh, so that if you have people in, within your circles of influence and contact that um, uh, are walking around with uh, tinfoil hats on inside of a bubble to just give them some perspective that uh, the end of humanity is not near, this is Dan Brown. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Prof, and this is The Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. At the uh, top of the hour, talked a little bit about Alan Dershowitz and uh, standards at the federal level when it comes to the role of the Department of Justice in investigation and the uh, ever-shifting standard of analysis applied by the Beltway Big Government Media and those who uh, believe that uh, taking Trump out of office by hook or by crook justifies any means. Uh, but I wanted to pick up on something else as it pertains to law enforcement. Uh, at, that's happening at the local level, the regional level. And this is important, too. Dershowitz, in his uh, interview with Breitbart at, that we played at the top, talks about uh, George Soros uh, enlisting Obama to initiate an investigation by the FBI during Obama's time as president. And uh, again, Dershowitz will have to prove up on that assertion. He suggests that will, there will be proof 
offered in the context of a complaint filed. Well, well, let's stick on the Soros connection for a matter and the question about the rule of men versus the rule of law in America these days. The, the Soros Progressive Prosecutor Project, not just Soros, but in significant measure financed by him. Chesa Bodine in San Francisco, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, Kim Fox in Chicago. These are all relatively newly minted district or state's attorneys in big American cities that are trying to change the law enforcement culture first within their jurisdictions and then to be replicated in other jurisdictions around the country with the backing of the George Soros's of the world. So he could whisper in the ears of these local prosecutors the way that he allegedly did President Obama as it pertained to the FBI. Andy McCarthy, our friend we spoke with yesterday on the show, a former federal prosecutor, Southern District of New York, has an excellent piece in Commentary Magazine on what exactly is happening. What is the game plan here and the end game? This is the key point. The key to understanding the Machiavellian brilliance of the Progressive Prosecutor Project is this. As a matter of constitutional law, no legislative or court has the power to order a prosecutor to charge any crime against any person. In our system, prosecution is exclusively an executive call. So practically speaking, short of voting out a rogue district attorney, there is no remedy for abusive discretionary omissions, decisions not to prosecute. So we see that playing out in real time with the Jussie Smollett case in, in Chicago. There is no remedy other than Cook County voters in Illinois voting out Kim Fox for her decision, effectively her decision to pass on prosecuting Jussie Smollett for his hate crime hoax. This is the key. The key here is by using their nearly absolute power with only the voters to answer to in areas that are, you know, five to one Democrat to Republican. So the, the primary is the general. And once they get in, they amass the political bandwidth and resources to stay in. The play is to create a culture of non-prosecution, to obstruct prosecution itself. This is who Krasner and Bodine and Fox are. And McCarthy provides another, an example in addition to the one I provided, Jesse Smollett in Chicago. And by the way, there are many others with actual violent criminals, too, in Chicago. The new San Francisco D.A., this is uh, that uh, Chase of Bodine, he vowed to establish an immigration unit at first blush, writes McCarthy. That would seem entirely normal for a prosecutor's office. Immigration laws require enforcement. Prosecutors are in the law enforcement business. But no, the new San Francisco D.A. actually had in mind an immigration defense unit. He wants to assign a staff of prosecutors to protect people in this country illegally, those who are either illegal and thus deportable to begin with or for whom a criminal conviction could result in the loss of lawful status and thus eventual deportation. The unit's enforcement target wouldn't be the violators of the law, but ICE agents who enforce federal laws, along with any local police and corrections official who have the temerity to assist ICE in that endeavor. Law enforcement defending a taxpayer fund financing, defending people here illegally against other law enforcement, people charged with crimes against other law enforcement. McCarthy adds, you know, you wouldn't expect to find that in a district attorney's office. But of course, neither would you expect to hear upon the DA's election in San Francisco, a victory party marked by ear splitting chance of FPOA. FPOA is the Police Officers Association in San Francisco. That's odd. Odd with the necessarily close relationship between a district attorney or a state's attorney and the police when it comes to the two sides of the justice system, isn't it? This is 
the progressive prosecutor, as McCarthy terms him, and this is the progressive prosecutor project financed by the likes of George Soros, undermine the culture of prosecution, undermine law enforcement when it disrupts political constituencies. This is literally the rule of men over the rule of law. These political constituencies are too valuable. Number one, we need to protect them to maintain their political loyalty. Number two, we need to focus people's attention in these big urban centers, many of which are flailing like Chicago, like San Francisco, which can't even keep its streets clean of human waste, draw people's attention away from the performance over, say, the last half century, uh, entire century in some big urban centers in this country, the performance of the one party that's been in control of them, including over the last half century when many of those Democrats in control were men and women of color. So the race racketeering hustle isn't quite as compelling, say, in Chicago when you've got a black mayor and a black Cook County state's attorney and a black Cook County board president. And you're going to what say that law enforcement is the result of white supremacy. Tough sell. But focus on non-prosecution, focus on serving a political constituency at all costs to maintain your power and misdirect people's attention away from assessing their actual performance and its impact on your lives. How's it been going on the west and south sides of Chicago, for example, over the last century, even the last 30 years? Even the last four or ten, pick any time metric you want. If you uh, pay attention to what they want you to pay attention to and litigate uh, the enforcement of federal immigration law, then you're less likely to be talking about why is it that my kids don't have access to the same quality schools as the, uh, the rich and the politically connected in the fair city in which I live? Why is it uh, we have food deserts and the dearth of economic opportunity in the neighborhoods in the fair city in which I live? Why are the neighborhoods in the fair city in which I live more rife with violent crime than the neighborhoods of the rich and the politically connected? Those are the uncomfortable questions that it becomes difficult to answer when you have no political opposition to your rule, as is the case in places like Philly and Chicago and San Francisco. So you have to come up with boogeymen. That's part of it. That's the very transactional play to maintain power. And then you combine that with real ideologues who don't believe in law enforcement, who believe every problem in America is the result of uh, institutional racism. The Progressive Prosecutor Project, coming to a big city or even a mid-sized city near you, if you allow it. This is the Dan Prop Show. The more you listen, the more you'll know. This is the Dan Prof Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And for those of you who don't know, I'm an avid golfer, grew up caddying, and that's how I got introduced to the game. And uh, unfortunately, left it for a while in my late 20s, early 30s when I was, you know, working for a living before I got this phony baloney radio gig where they pay me a lot of money to work just a few hours a week. But um, still play a lot of golf, get my game back in shape, single digits fairly low single digits. So I like to play a lot because that's the only way you can stay in the low single digits. And uh, so I'm very interested in the study coming out of University of Missouri, particularly as I advance into my, well, into deep into middle age. Uh, yes, yes, yes. University of Missouri, the uh, n- uh, professor of neurology there, Dr. Adnan Qureshi, looked at uh, 
5,900 adults over the age of 65. Studied them for a decade. Each participant underwent uh, extensive health exams every six months over the course of the 10-year project. Subjects uh, also periodically contacted via phone, surveyed any heart-related health incidents. The uh, control group, individuals who didn't play golf, and then the uh, experimental group, the individuals who played golf at least once per month. Once per month. That was the threshold to be considered a regular golfer. Let me tell you something. That's not a regular golfer. 12 times a year, regular golfer? How about 12 times a month, regular golfer, at minimum? But anyway, that was enough to uh, distinguish health benefits from golf. Listen to this. 384 regular golfers were initially identified from the 5,900 adults over the age of 65 that were monitored over the decade. Over the course of the research, 8% of the golfers suffered a stroke and 10% had a heart attack. Remember, we're talking about adults over the age of 65. Regarding overall death rates, regular golfers had a significantly lower rate of death in comparison to non-golfers. 15% for golfers versus 25% for non-golfers. So, I mean, you know, two-thirds advantage. Uh, Qureshi, the professor who was the lead on the study, while walking and low-intensity jogging may be comparable exercise, they lack the competitive excitement of golf. Sure, the club throwing, that gets your blood pressure up. Regular exercise and exposure to a less polluted environment and social interactions provided by golf are all positive for health. Another positive is that older adults can continue to play golf, unlike other more strenuous sports, you know, much later into life. So the stress relief and relaxation uh, appears to be uh, generated more from golf than other physical activities. And the goal is to get uh, HHS to include golf in its physical activity guidelines for Americans, which it does not at present, although I'm not so sure. I'm even a little too competitive. I'm not so sure golf is always a stress relief for me. It does allow me to enjoy a cigar outdoors, which I like, um, but I also am sympathetic to the Mark Twain observation that it's a good walk spoiled. Nonetheless, if it's once per month and you have that kind of health benefit for uh, those over 65, as much as I play golf, uh, I'm looking to live probably to about the age of Papa Smurf. So at least I'll get to play more golf. Thank you for joining us on another installment of the Dan Prop Show. Check in again tomorrow night. Another putt's in the cup. Another putt's in the cup. And another putt's in, and another putt's in. Another putt's in the cup. Hey, I'm going to beat you too. Another putt's in the cup. Far from the fake news, he's always got the real story. This is the Dan Proft Show. You are fake news.